This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to... We're watching here! We're watching here! This is Opinionated and Spooky Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me is the critter to my ghoulie, Perry Cyber. How you doing, Chris? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. We're going to talk some scary movies in just a little bit to uh, tie into Halloween. But before we do that, Perry, what have you been watching? What have I been... Oh! I, uh, uh, Between Two Ferns. The movie. Oh, okay. Which I, um, excited might be too strong a word. Mm-hmm. I really like Zach Galifianakis. I, I am a huge Galifianakis fan. Um, which is not to say I, I, I don't think he's, you know, everything is utterly perfect, but I just love that sensibility. And would you say you're a Galifianakis? I am. I'm a Galifianakis. Okay. I would say that exactly. <laughs> uh, so. <laughs> It got you late? It hit you the second time, did it? <laughs> is that just a polite, loud second laugh? No, it's a very, it's a very genuine second laugh. The, uh, so, uh, I, I love, like any normal, right-thinking human being, I adore the shorts. Uh, the Brad Pitt one is probably my favorite, followed closely by the Bruce Willis one. Uh, and I was excited to see what they would do with this. I knew even if it was a mess, and I figured it would be a mess, there would be at least a half dozen really big laughs. And I am happy to report that there, every single one of the actual Between Two Ferns segments within the movie are great. And oh, okay. there's even, uh, and the biggest laugh uh, probably comes not even in one of those sequences. And it involves Lauren Lapkus doing a deadpan stupid joke that's one of the funniest things I've seen all year that I, I adore her for coming up with the line, assuming it was improvised. And I saw this, I saw this uh, shortly after it came out. I, I, I go, I'm on the fence about how much I enjoyed it. I think just like anything that makes the jump from five minutes to 80 minutes, it, there's a lot of slack there. Absolutely. I, I found myself very surprised that the sequences I liked least tended to be the interviews. Oh. Which is weird. I, I, and I didn't, oh, interesting. I didn't hate the interviews. There are some, I think there are, as usual with Between Two Ferns, I think there are some people who play with him better than others. Um, but I think, I, I think for the most part, there are, there's some funny stuff in there. I feel like his punches are pulled a bit. I think because some of them have to play into the overarching story. He doesn't really get to focus on kind of making the dig hurt so much <laughs> as moving the story along. Um, but I, I, you know, I didn't think they were bad. I'm actually, I've seen they started to release the full interviews on YouTube. Uh, and I'm curious to go back and watch those and just see what wasn't included in the movie. I have to believe the Benedict Cumberbatch is outstanding. The, the just... Benedict Cumberbatch one is very funny. The Paul Rudd one is very funny. The Paul Rudd one is amazing. Paul Rudd, Paul Rudd one is pretty, is, is pretty great. And I even love, I even love obviously the heavily scripted, uh, McConaughey one at the top. I think it's really fun. It's obviously scripted. It's because he can play, he. But it's so well scripted. <laughs> I think when they can play their, uh, play up the fact that they, are just seething with rage and just really <laughs> shut down. That's when it's funniest to me. The Sean Penn one that he did. I love that because I, I genuinely think Sean Penn is going to kill. Him. Well, you've, have you ever heard the interviews about he's done about this? I, I know Scott Ackerman like stopped it early because he thought yes. Sean Penn was really mad. 
And apparently, they actually all went out to dinner that night. He was cool, but... They actually did, yes. They stopped it right then, because they really were kind of afraid. <laughs> he does look so pissed off. And I just, I love that for that one, he didn't go with Zach Galifianakis. He knew the thing that would push the most was Seth Galifianakis, <laughs> which just cracks me up. Um, I actually found the funny, the, the, the kind of connecting material in this movie is very heavily improvised. Yes. Uh, and some of that works well, some of it doesn't. I think it kind of snowballs as it goes on where I thought at first, oh, this is kind of slack. And then it just, the silliness of it really builds up. Uh, there was kind of a wet, hot American summer vibe I got in some places where it was just pointedly critique, you know, making fun of the whole trope of, you know, he's down on his luck, but he has to learn how to just do it. And it, it, there's a there's a joke with a TV show he ends up watching uh, in a bar one night that kind of was the turnaround point that made me laugh. Lauren Lapkus is, she, she's the MVP of the movie. I, I know what scene you're talking about. It's, it's, it's a, I'm just going to say it. I can't help it. They're at a diner. She's ordering, they're trying to figure out what's happening for lunch. And she asked the waitress, <laughs> how big are the clam strips? And the waitress says, have you ever seen a chicken strip? And she just moon-eyed, just as it, like, the perfect amount of pause and a, a little bit of wonder in her voice says, I've never even seen a chicken wear clothing. <laughs> I, I had to pause. I laughed so hard. I could not stop. It, it is just, such a great dad joke. God bless you, Lauren Lapkus. That joke is so good. It, it's good. The one that got me was, um, it was right before the Paul Rudd interview, where he's talking to Paul Rudd about his charity, which is for <laughs> kids without bones. Yes. <laughs> and, and I laughed really hard at yes. that. Uh, the outtakes for it are wonderful. Uh, over the end credits are a lot of fun. Um <laughs> If only because I think John Hamm has the most <laughs> ridiculous celebrity laugh I've ever heard. It is this wheezing, snorting thing. And the only celebrity I've ever heard with a weirder laugh has been um, Nick Offerman. Yes. Who has a really like <laughs> laugh. <laughs> it, it made, it, I, 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 I didn't find it as funny as I hoped, but I do think it... Uh, right. It, it's on Netflix... What are you going to That's exactly right. It's funny. Yeah, I'd send us the recommendation on it. It's funny. Yeah. We could even cut this now and use this as a bonus episode. I don't know if we could. I think it's like two minutes. Okay. Um, I I feel like we've been talking about the movie for a long time. Let's see. No, it's six minutes. Okay, never mind. Uh, so what I've been watching, again, I've been kind of making my grand tour of seeing what did I miss this year, which is a lot. Um, I usually, this is usually how it goes. I, the first half of the year, I don't see a ton. And then as we start getting near the end of the year, we start getting screeners, things like that. That's when I really start like catching up on stuff. Um, but I was home from work sick a few weeks ago and I finally caught up with Longshot. Uh, oh, yeah. The, uh, Seth Rogen, yes. Charlie Theron movie. I really liked it. Yeah, it's I charming. thought it was a lot of fun, and it kind of went nowhere with audiences. I, I thought it was a very funny movie. I'm a fan of what Seth Rogen does. As am I, I. I like Seth Rogen. I, you know, this is kind of again him doing the schlubby guy who falls in love with someone who's sort of out of his league. But Seth Rogen's looking pretty good these days. <laughs> uh, but he's just he's just so endearing and so likable. Charlize Theron is so much fun in this. I think she has a lot a great time. Um, 
But I think the people who steal the entire movie are June Diane Raphael, who is really great, and O'Shea Jackson Jr., who made me <laughs> laugh every every single line he said made me laugh. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. It's about a uh, kind of a edgy vice-type writer who becomes a speechwriter for a presidential candidate. He knew her growing up, and they, you know, it's a love story wrapped in there. It's a really solid romantic comedy. I think it makes a lot of good points about politics and women in politics. I, I mean, I don't think it's it's a revolutionary thing. It's a really enjoyable movie. I I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's the kind of movie you wish made more money than it did. Exactly. Yes, it's a well-made, good time at the movies. It That's is all it is. It is, and that is rare. Um, that that is actually becoming rare. Where there is something that I think would please a lot of crowds that doesn't have explosions or superheroes in it. And, yeah, it's just, it's fun. It's, it's fun. It is. Watch. I enjoyed it. That's all I have to say about that one. We're going to move on to uh, some scarier things. Um, we're going to talk about our favorite scary movies uh, in honor of Halloween. And I thought this would be interesting because it is Halloween. I think horror is a genre that... it. it I don't know that we've talked a lot about horror movies. I don't know if we've talked at all about horror movies in the months we've been doing I this. don't think so. Uh, so I'm curious, is that a genre you tend to flock to? No. Okay. I will tell you why. And it was the it was interesting when you said, let's do let's do horror movies for October. Okay, well, yes, that's the obvious thing to do. The, and this is I wanna be real clear, like I like to say, this is a taste issue for me. Mm-hmm. This is not I don't think horror films are repulsive. I don't think they're evil, I don't think they're bad, I don't think they're harmful. I, I understand the appeal. Absolutely. I just don't scare easily. Okay. Nor do I usually think, well, this is what I want. I just don't care to... I, I, I just see through the artifice too much. Once I hit a particular age, sure. these things stopped being scary. And then they became really boring. I'm not enough of a genre enthusiast to detail the differences in slasher movies. I don't care. I know people who do, and it's great. I want to be real clear. I don't care. I'm not saying it's not important or worthy. And people who really love this stuff, I love listening to them talk about it. They can make me want to see things that I would normally never care about just because of their enthusiasm. I will tell you the best experience I've ever had in a horror movie. I I was going to tell this story, but I'm going to tell it right now. I will tell you ahead of time, when this gears up, if you're listening on earbuds, you might want to pull one out. You might want to turn down just a little bit. <laughs> this is going to get loud. Very, very loud. So this is a story about the time I saw Paranormal Activity in the theater. Okay. I went to see Paranormal Activity uh, uh, by myself with a couple, with two different couples. I worked with two of them at where I worked at the time. Okay. They brought up one of their significant others. One of them, a couple, Andrew and Emily. Andrew Leahy, now a very fine country western singer, songwriter, guitar player. He's got a great band. Check out Andrew. Free plug for Andrew. There we go. I'll let him know he gets mentioned. Andrew and Emily went to this movie with us, and I ended up sitting by Emily. Emily and his wife. Emily's an absolute sweetheart. She's a wonderful, wonderful human being. Uh, she hates horror movies. And she hates horror movies, Chris, because they scare her. Yes. And she does not wish to be scared. Uh, I don't know if she lost a bet. I don't know if she was just being a good wife. I have no idea why she was at this movie, but she sat next to me. You've seen Paranormal Activity? I have seen Paranormal Activity. I will explain quicker than I would otherwise. 
there is the great gimmick in paranormal activity is you get the shot with the night with the night camera that's totally static and then something moves a little bit and everybody freaks out right that's that's the that's the scare in paranormal activity they do it about i don't know half a dozen times yes. six seven eight times in the movie the first time it happened right we don't know we've not seen the movie we saw opening night no press on this uh uh, it, 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 it's still, and then finally the thing moves that's gonna move. And Emily proceeds to do this. You have been warned. Six. Six high pitched bleats. Now, the best part was every single time they went to that shot. She did that again when the thing moved, except every future time she was digging into the armrest next to her with her fingers. I had never been so physically close to someone having a horror movie play on them like that. It was the best time I've ever had at a horror movie. That's pretty great. Uh, I'm kind of like you. Horror is not a genre I flock to. Um, I used to when I was in my 20s. I kind of went through that phase where it's like, I want to see, you know, all all the goriest horror movies I've seen, all the scariest movies. And I kind of just outgrew that. I was, you know, I grew up in the 80s and I loved Freddy and Jason as a kid. I One of my uh, biggest consumer regrets is being at Target when I was like 25 and seeing that they had the entire collection of Friday the 13th on sale for 80 bucks on DVD. <laughs> on sale for 80 bucks on DVD. So I was so excited. I bought the entire series <laughs> of Friday the 13th. How many were there at that point? Uh, there, were, This was, I mean, this would have been mid-2000s, and I don't think they've made one in 10 years. So this was all of them, pretty much. Um, Freddy vs. Jason? No, it was all the Paramount movies. Oh, okay. And they've since switched to New Line. I don't know why I know that. But uh, I was so excited. I brought home to my roommate, and I'm like, we're going to watch all the Friday the 13th this week. This is going to be great. This is going to be awesome. These are so scary. These movies suck. <laughs> These I we we got through two of them and I was like, I think I need to take this to GameStop or something and I probably got like twenty bucks for it, but I, I used to love slasher movies. I still have this little guilty pleasure of every Halloween wanting to pull out like Halloween and Nightmare on Elm, which I, I do like Halloween, the original. Yeah. Um and I like to pull out Nightmare on Elm Street and things like that. But there's so much horror, there is very little that works on me. I just think a horror movie, once it reveals its gimmick, how it's going to scare you and returns to it throughout the movie, that first jump, that, ah, ah, you know, yes. that that works on me. And then I find throughout the movie that diminishes really quickly because every movie has its own rules of how it's going to scare you. Yes. And I've seen them all. Um, it's very rare that a movie actually scares me. Uh, maybe the scare, the most scared I've been in a movie or the biggest reaction I've had was, have you seen The Descent? Uh, no, I never have. I I, I, I would. I it, had, it got away from me at the time, and I just never circled back. There is a jump scare in that movie involving a night, uh, night recording camera that got me so good that I jumped about a foot in the air, screamed, threw my popcorn on the ground. Uh, and it was a crowded movie theater. Other than that, I don't watch a ton, but I will say... When I see a horror movie that's done really well, it can be one of my favorite things. Absolutely. Um, it, it's like comedy in that regard. There are a million ways to screw it up, but when it's done right, I love it. So, you know, in recent years, I've liked stuff like The Babadook and It Follows and things like that. But it's, 
There usually it's low on my list. I, I can't remember the last time I've paid to see a horror. Nope, that's not true. I guess you could count Crawl as a horror movie, but uh, the alligator one. Uh, but, yeah, I paid to see Us. Okay, I liked Us. I hated Us. We <laughs> had the the, the bonus yeah. episode on that. So I'm curious then, how did you put together your list of your top three? So for me, I went really loose because why don't we usually pretty we usually drill down pretty hard mm-hmm. exactly what we're gonna do. Like yeah. we, we, we fence this in so that we can have a manageable field sure. to work from. And I thought we landed on, we talked about, I can't remember if we said scary movies or horror movies. And I thought it was horror movies. Like I thought it was we the horror, horror movies. movies. Yeah. So, and I realized I was going to have to leave that genre. Okay. And so what I've done is I've compiled a list of what I think is, would be my answer if you ask me what's the greatest horror film ever made. Okay. I have a film, uh, that I think is the scariest, the scariest experience I've ever had in a theater. Okay. Which is not a horror movie per se, but I think you'll understand when we get there. And then I'm going to share a movie that is, again, it's a horror movie that I, uh, that I loved at the time. Mm-hmm. And I will explain, uh, I'll get into why that it, I don't have the affection for it I once had. I re, I revisited it this week. And again, I don't want to use the term hold. We talked about this before. I'm not saying it didn't hold up. I'm saying I've changed. It doesn't play the same way for me, but the memories of it are still very sweet and fresh, and I don't discount it. It doesn't. It doesn't. It does not pee on my memory of these. <laughs> yeah, of how much I enjoyed the movie yeah. and how much, and, and the things I like about it. There's some things about it I still really, really like. So we will get to those. That's how I broke it down, Chris. Okay. How about you? Not much. I, I went with three horror movies that just. I don't want to say scared me. Like scared me in terms of jumping out of my seat. I wanted to go with three movies. That I felt like got under my skin. Um, three movies that like I, I in one case definitely it was a horror movie that actually like horrified me. Yes. Um, and I think that's different than what a lot of scary movies want to do. A lot of horror movies want to do. They want to get that jolt. They want you to come back with your friends. I wanted to go with stuff that makes me hesitant to revisit. Same it. here. And Honestly, they are not surprising picks. Two of them are very well regarded as kind of classics of the genre, but they are movies that really got under my skin. Um, and I think this is time of year is fun to bring back some of the obvious stuff. So, uh, but why don't you start with yours? All right, I'll go with uh, what would be my answer if you asked me what's the greatest horror film ever made. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were honestly two. I had I had four films I really wanted to talk about, and I'm going to cheat and squeeze two of them into this okay. section because it seemed unfair to talk about both Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby. I should okay. just pick one Polanski movie. So, <laughs> so if you've never seen Repulsion, please see Repulsion. I have not seen Repulsion. It's okay. amazing. Uh, but the answer to the question is, what's the scariest movie ever made? It's Rosemary's Baby. Okay. <laughs> I find Rosemary's Baby infinitely watchable. I love Polanski's work. Uh, again, a problematic figure. I, I, the work is, to me, unimpeachable. Uh, and Rosemary's Baby is so good because it is so human. It is about the terror of being pregnant. <laughs> Which is completely understandable to half of the population. And probably... Something the other half should probably get to understand real well. <laughs> so, um, uh, Mia Farrow is fantastic in it. She is so perfectly physically cast. She looks so delicate and breakable that you fear for her from frame one. 
Uh, John Cassavetes is just marvelous as her husband. Uh, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to, I mean, I, I feel like it's a movie everybody should know, but I'm willing to bet there are a bunch of people who probably never seen it. And so I don't want to go into great detail about it, truthfully. I, I, I wish to remain sort of spoiler free on it. But just to say that John Cassavetes, who is at this point in time revered as, you know, the, the godfather of American independent cinema, rightfully so, was also an outstanding actor. <laughs> And is really good here, as is Ruth Gordon, uh, uh, as one of the uh, the neighbors to the couple. I, I truly, I'm not saying much because I kind of want you to be surprised. There's so much. It's easy to find out what this film's about and yeah. what happens in it and what it does. And if you if you're hearing this and you've never seen it, or you think you know what it is, it's it's still worth seeing. It's a film that yes, there's kind of a twist. But you, do, it's not reliant. It's the revelation of that twist is not the movie. It is the actual ending to the theme that the movie is about. Much like how The Sixth Sense gets away with its twist. Because mm. the twist is inseparable from the theme of the movie. And that's what's going on here as well. This is a film about what it's like to, to be afraid to be pregnant. And the fear of what's going to happen because you're pregnant. Uh, and boy... It just works beautifully. It's so creepy and so disturbing. Uh, it's very much, uh, very much 1969 and still very much placed to a modern audience. I, I, I think the film is both timely of its time and timeless. I, I have been enthused enough. I'm now just babbling. It's no, I was trying to remember it. Just, I'm sure I've seen Rosemary's Baby, but I have not seen it in a very long time. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you why, because I'm sure I've seen it. At some point, God, it, there are memories in my mind of it. But I read the book. Oh yeah, I read the book years ago. And the book really struck me the same way as you. I kept wondering where was the horror? Where was the horror? Because it really is this tale of a couple where they're pregnant, and she starts to kind of understand things are not all right in the building they're at. And but then it builds to its ending, and the ending scared the hell out of me in the book because there is a description involving eyes yes. as a baby. Yes. And it literally, I've never had this happen in a book where I'm reading it and you, you're always visualizing what's in the book, but it was such a stark visual in my <laughs> eyes that I, I jumped reading the book, <laughs> the book the day, had nightmares about it. And so I have been terrified to revisit from this <laughs> because the book unsettled me so much. I might try and do that this High year. Praise. It's that that's a good story. Ira Levin writes yeah. to be adapted into film. Yes. And I, I, I think I think Polanski's film is richer and deeper than Levin's book, quite frankly. Uh and the book's very good. I, that's not a knock. That's just to say that there are I think he gets at more things yeah, than I'm, the book gets I'm at. I'm sure he does. Uh it's that rare thing. It's an adaptation. It's a better adaptation of a good book. Uh, yeah. I, I love Rosemary's Baby. It's available everywhere. Readily. Uh, you know. It used to be on Netflix. Check it out, people. Um, so mine is... Gosh, I went back and forth as to whether I should include The Exorcist on this. Because The Exorcist really did get under my skin when I saw it. And The Exorcist is another one of those movies that... I've seen it. I'm okay never seeing it again. Because... It's like, I don't know if I want to put myself through that again. I thought about putting The Exorcist on there. But I, go ahead. Uh, if you don't mind a, a, a detour. Because sure. I wouldn't mind having a quick conversation about The Exorcist. Yeah. Because that is a horror film that I have 
my whole life I have struggled to come to terms with to understand because it has never scared me. Really? Okay. Never. The only appeal that movie has for me is watching Jason Miller's priest wrestle with his faith. That's the stuff in the movie that really plays for me. I find all of the 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 the, the possession stuff just ridiculous. I mean, I, I enjoy Mercedes McCambridge performance as that voice. Sure. But I, I don't I, I never, it never scared me, and I could never figure out what it was as a kid. And I saw that movie first at probably age 12, 13, probably. Mm-hmm. I'd read this every three, four years trying to figure out, what is it? Nothing for me is more terrifying for me than when she gets the spinal tap. That's the most horrific thing in the movie to me. Like, that's horrifying to me. And it took me until my early 20s until I realized, and I, 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 I say this with an entirely open heart mm-hmm. and an open mind to anyone else's belief system. I said, it doesn't scare me because I don't think that can happen. I, I am not grounded enough in a traditional faith to find that. I, I just, sure. well, it's not believable. I can't, and you can't make me suspend disbelief to go there. And I wanted to tell the story in part for something that will be set up later in the, in the conversation. I, I think, no, I think you hit on why that movie scared me. Yes. Because, yeah. I grew up in a very strong faith yes. community, and I wasn't Catholic, so I'm not familiar with exorcisms and stuff, but the idea of demons was something that was really talked about quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so I think there was this idea, because it's been a long time since I've seen The Exorcist. I was probably in my 20s when I saw it. Um, it there was, I was, And I was definitely more entrenched in talk about spirituality and demons and stuff at that point. Um, and, and so I think there was this idea that Oh, I believe this. This could happen. Um, I think there are tricks that just automatically get under my skin. Subliminal imagery in movies really kind of messes with me. <laughs> and there are like quick shots of the demon's face yes. that, that come up. And that that unsettles me. Um, I think this is actually good that you brought it up because what scares me about The Exorcist is part of what scared me about the film I'm going to talk about. There is something really transgressive about The Exorcist. I, I think the makeup work and the vomit and stuff is silly. The idea of a little girl spouting profane language, masturbating with a crucifix, that is something that in a movie I'm like, that should not be. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's not what you expect. It's not a line you expect the movie to go past. And I think when I saw it, it was definitely that idea that there has been something that has gotten into this film that is just... It's unsettling. It bothers me. It scares me. Um, I, I don't think any of the special effects stuff is really there. It, it's hokey years later. But just the way it pushes past what I expect to be accepted, at that point, expected behavior in a movie, it, it's, it blindsided me. And I think that's what keeps The Exorcist scary, is it, it feels like in its scariest moments, it's doing something wrong. Like, <laughs> like, like you... It's a weird feeling. Um, I also haven't revisited it, and I didn't put it on this list, because I don't know, after that initial shock, if that scare holds up. Um, so I didn't want to put it on there, because I haven't. Fair. It, it's been a while since I've seen The Exorcist, but it's honorable mention. I, I always like to point out, real quick, one last thing on The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Adjusted for inflation, it's the biggest hit in the history of Warner. Which is both crazy and understandable. <laughs> um, it, it's unfathomable to me, honestly. <laughs> Horror movies are such big money that I am not surprised. Um, but it, it's also surprising because I would have loved Warner that. Warner Brothers. 
I would have thought there would have been a Batman movie in there. Somewhere. <laughs> um, what I went with instead was actually a movie that's a little bit older than The Exorcist. Um, it's 1968's Night of the Living Dead. Oh, yeah. Uh, by George Romero. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to be, I, I remember, I, in fact, I was on Facebook the other day looking through my Facebook memories, and about 10 years ago I had posted a comment that I don't hold to anymore, but it was, any <laughs> film can be improved by the presence of zombies. <laughs> That's what was missing from Darkest Hour. Of course. I, I don't know why I held that belief, but That's I think it was fantastic. at that point we were starting to get a little bit of zombie. Like, <laughs> you know, we had Shaun of the Dead, we had the Dawn of the Dead remake. We, we've got enough zombies. We're okay with zombies now. We're, we're, we're fine. I don't need any more zombies. Um, but for some reason, that particular subgenre of horror really, there was a period where it really impacted me. I, I loved zombie movies, and I think it was because you could use the metaphor to say pretty much anything about culture that you wanted. Uh, I really was a fan of Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland and maybe a season or two of The Walking Dead. Um, and it was kind of in that mode that I finally was like, oh, I should go back and see Night of the Living Dead. And I'd seen Dawn of the Dead and, you know, the original Romero one. But I, Night of the Living Dead was the one that had passed by. And I thought, well, you know, it's probably quaint and and stuff. And it's not going to hold up. But, you know, I should probably watch it just to be completist. It scared the hell out of me. Yeah. And it goes back to that idea, I think, uh, that I have with The Exorcist. That it feels transgressive. In my mind, and I think this is where I benefited from watching it as an adult... In my mind, there is a safety to black and white old horror movies. They don't go that far. You know, you think of Frankenstein and the Wolfman and Dracula. Those are not intense experiences. And so I think I sat and watched it expecting this movie that felt very quaint and felt maybe a little bit cheesy and silly. And instead, you get a little girl chowing down on someone's arm. You get... (laughs) The hordes of zombies dining on people's intestines, you get a bleak as hell ending. And that movie shook me up. Uh, there's already the thing about zombies that scares me is the relentlessness of them. It's why the slower zombies are scary. This idea that you can outpace for a bit, but after a while they are going to overwhelm. The group will get you. Yes, they're going to consume Yes. You. But then also this idea that it'll come back in another film, and it's a really common one in horror movies, that really those monsters out there aren't the scariest thing in the world. It's actual humanity. And the idea that even when it's safe for the hero at the end, it's not safe. And I know Romero has said before that the racial angle of the film was not intentional. That casting, um, God, was it Dwayne? I want to say Dwayne Johnson. I know it's a Dwayne something. I don't know. If oh, right. God. I know the story you mean, but I don't know the name. And since we're pausing to do this, excuse me. <clears throat> there we go. Oh, I uh, crushed my voice doing Emily's bleats. <laughs> <laughs> and I know he said that casting Dwayne Jones was just kind of a happy accident that, that it was, you know, as a black actor. He was not looking to make a racial statement. I can't believe that. Um, that movie is so poignant about the politics of that time. The fact that it ends with white hillbillies shooting a black man at the end of the movie feels very intentional. Feels like a statement, and it it is that one of the it is one of those movies where it's just even when you're safe, you're not safe, 
and it, it just yeah to to see a black and white movie do things that in my mind a black and white movie wouldn't have been doing at that point mm-hmm. it 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 felt like it violated an agreement that I had with that movie <laughs> um, that yo you're gonna be a safe horror movie you're not really gonna really scare me I'm just watching you for academic purposes or whatever and then it really did the job and bothered me and I actually think it's I like Night of the Living Dead better than Dawn of the Dead. I Dawn of the Dead's a little bit shaggy for me in places, uh, and it gets it has a pie fight. But uh, I yeah, I mean that's Night of the Living Dead. It, it definitely scared me. It still is a movie that it, it can burrow under my skin pretty good. Yeah, I like it. I I, I I've always been a fan. Uh, what is number two for you? Uh, I need to tell. I need to go back. Forgive me. There's one other story about Rosemary's Baby I wanted to tell. Sure. I forgot about. Uh, in the documentary Visions of Light, which is a documentary about cinematography, okay. it's really worth checking out. I highly recommend it to anybody. Uh, William Fraker, who shot that movie, tells a story about uh, there's a there's a shot, there's a long shot where uh, Mia Farrow's character is on the phone with her doctor, with her uh, obstetrician, gynecologist, and uh, Polanski told him what he wanted. He wants he, he wanted to frame her through this door, through the door for the door to the bedroom. The door's open. You can see in the bedroom and she's in there on the phone, sitting on the phone. He sets the whole thing up, has it lined up. It's lit perfectly. Polanski walks in, takes a look at it. This is Fraker telling the story in the, mm. in the documentary. And he pushes the camera six inches over to the right. And Fraker's like, what the hell? I just spent like, and he, he just looked at me and said, trust me. And they shot it. And uh, it, uh, you'll know the scene I'm talking about if you know the movie. It's it's a it's a very memorable shot because then when you see the actual movie and Franker sees it screened for the first time with an audience and he's sitting in the back because he said I'll sit in the back to watch the reaction. So what's going on? And so there's this scene where you see just like her knees, like her knee and her elbow every once in a while and her arm moves and you hear her voice the whole time. And he said I watched every single head in the theater lean <laughs> tilt to the left. To try to look around the door frame. <laughs> that's how good Polanski is. <laughs> oh, I love that story. Okay, forgive me for oh, that's dropping that back. So my second choice, we'll talk about my sentimental choice. Okay. I had two again that I really considered. Two horror movies that I really... At some of my life I would have said, this is my favorite horror movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went with... The, I want to talk more about the one that scared me the most. Okay. But the honorable mention is Creepshow. Okay. <laughs> to keep Romero in the game here. Uh, I was a big fan of Creepshow. I think in part because it was funny. Yeah. It was allowed to be funny. And I, what's great was getting older and seeing a lot of the uh, Italian Jello films that were obviously the inspiration for how that film looks. I didn't know any of those when I saw Creepshow for the first time when I was nine or ten, maybe. Uh, it's a, it's a, it is a great, ridiculous movie that I, I continue to enjoy to this day. Although it, I don't know that other than the... Uh, the the way uh, the way Leslie Nielsen kills Ted Danson is one of the most horrifying things I can imagine. <laughs> that one freaked me out as a kid. I got to admit, just the concept that you could go that way was scarier than I could ever possibly imagine. Uh, but the movie that genuinely did scare me a ton uh, when I was younger uh, it it doesn't anymore. And I did rewatch it this week for the first time in a very long time, uh, knowing I kind of wanted to talk about it today. So it's a film I I I. I I don't want to say I recommend it. I'm just sharing biography here. Is Ellen Parker's Angel Heart? Oh wow, that's a it's it is a movie that almost killed the Cosby Show. <laughs> uh, 
It is an adaptation of a really well-respected novel that I've never read and always wanted to. It's actually supposed to arrive for me shortly through Melcat. Oh, nice. Uh, that actually is listed in, if you've ever read Dance Macabre, Stephen King's non- first, first nonfiction book about horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lists like 50 notable works. That book is one of them. Okay. Uh, uh, and it's about a private eye in New York City in the late 50s, or early 60s, I forget where it starts, late 50s, I think who uh, is hired by a very mysterious dude to find an, an old crooner who was famous before the war, who then went missing. Uh, the Private Eye is played by Mickey Rourke, and this is the last gasp of great Mickey Rourke. <laughs> this is, Mickey Rourke goes downhill pretty quickly after Angel Heart. I think from 80 to 87 is just your prime Mickey Rourke era, where he really was a fabulous actor. <laughs> was probably still uh, just awful to work with, but was a fabulous screen presence for that period of time. Um, and what I like is how I realize now, uh, looking back on it and seeing it again, what I responded to so strongly was that it's so steeped in sort of the detective noir structure Mm -hmm. and the dialogue. It's really hard bitten noir dialogue. There is a moment where he finds a dead body and then he looks over the body and he takes out a match and he just strikes a match on the dead guy's shoe and lights a cigarette with it, which to me is... (laughs) Exactly what Mickey Rourke should be doing in every movie. That's just a glorious, <laughs> awful, wonderful moment of utter sleep. That's great. <laughs> That's why I like this movie, Chris. Uh, and yes, the first time I saw the movie, the end, I was unfamiliar with the tropes that this film walks in. Okay. I do not wish to wreck the movie, uh, as opposed to, uh, oh no, you said you want to talk about Rosemary's Baby either. I didn't want to wreck the movie. Let's just say, yes, if you wish to call me a hypocrite for, for realizing why uh, why The Exorcist never scared me, but why this film did as a kid. Uh, fine, I accept that. I'm a, I, I, I contain multitudes. Uh, yeah, subjective. It's a movie I enjoy. And I still did see it again. It was weird. It was one of those things where it was like, oh my god, I know this movie by heart, and I haven't thought about it in forever. Pun not intended. And uh, it is, it's, it's, it's still a weird movie to this day. It still plays weird. Uh, it, it, you know, I've seen better detective noir fusions of this, so that's probably why I I don't love it like I once yeah, did. Yeah, you see something when you're young, it it, it, it it has an effect. Yeah, it's I saw it at the right time before yeah. I knew a lot of these tropes, and so it was oh 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 whoa! <laughs> and I still enjoy. If you've ever wanted to see Robert De Niro, who plays the man who hires Mickey Rourke to find the singer, uh, the uh, the great fun of uh, of the performance is Robert De Niro. Specifically makes himself look like Martin Scorsese. <laughs> That's it's a wonderful in joke in the uh, in the movie, uh, especially if you uh, know where it goes. Uh, Angel Heart. It's currently streaming on on Amazon for on Prime, which I was surprised by. I have the DVD, and yet I watched it on Prime just because I saw it sitting there. Uh, do I highly recommend this movie? No, I don't. I don't wish to imply it's some lost gem that you've never seen. But is it a movie that I think about a lot when I think about horror movies? Yeah, it had that effect on me. So yes, a little bit of cinematic DNA to answer this question of of, of the three horror movies I like to talk about. I might have to check that out. Maybe I'll check that out over Halloween time. Um, speaking of movies we saw when we were kids, there's a story to set up my number two. Pick. Yay! Uh, so I've mentioned before that my parents were fairly strict about what we could watch growing up. Um, we couldn't watch much with swearing in it. We couldn't watch much with sex. Violence, they seem to be, like, 
you know, action movies were okay up to a point. Um, but the only time that rule really didn't hold was if my mom went out of town with her friends. <laughs> and my dad took a lot of pleasure in having scary movie nights with us. <laughs> and he would have the kids uh, gather, in the, we'd gather in the living room. There was myself, my brother, and my sister. And he would usually bring home like a Frankenstein or a Wolfman or something. And I had to be, and it was our old house, so I was 10 at the most at this point, which means my brother was 8, my sister was probably about 4 or 5. And one night, he brought home the 1974 Toby Hooper movie, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Wow. Which escalates things quite quickly. Yeah, that is... I, I still, to this day, don't know what he was thinking. I will say, we fell asleep pretty quickly. Uh, the movie opens with, like, the decomposing body. There's like 20 minutes till anything happens. So, yeah, yes, so I can we fell asleep. And it was kind of a joke in our family for a while. I can't believe Dad ran the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he's like, oh, it wasn't that scary. You guys fell asleep, blah, blah, blah. So in my 20s, I finally was like, I should probably end up just going back and watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I had a long conversation with my dad after that. Because that is not a movie you should show kids. Um, and it's a <laughs> you, movie... What were you saying? You do love your transgressive movies, don't you? <laughs> it, yeah, it's, <laughs> it is not a movie you should show kids. Um... And I revisited it last year in a series I was writing about horror movies, Tom. And I gotta say, this is a movie that I don't like to revisit. It bothers me. Uh, it is a movie I have not bothered with the sequels. I think I saw one remake and was like, whatever. But there is something about the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It feels putrid. Yes. It feels like it's rotting. Every, <laughs> you can, there are certain movies where you can smell the movie. And I can smell everything in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It, it, it is a movie where you can just tell it was filmed on hot, sweaty Texas days. It feels oppressive from the start. Uh, there is, it, it starts at the beginning with these, you know, kind of hippies just taking a drive to the family farm. But the radio is talking about solar flares and weird crimes that are going on, which sets this offsetting, almost apocalyptic opening for this movie. And then they visit a family, their family farm before any of the scary stuff happens. It's just this decrepit farm where there are clusters of spiders crawling on the wall. And you just, the world of this movie is falling apart before it even gets scary. It's like if the whole of, uh, of, of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood took place at Spawn Ranch. Yes. That's yes. It. Yes. That's very good. And then I usually, slashers don't do much. They get silly after a while. But still watching Leatherface and the Sawyer family, it is unsettling. I think Leatherface's first appearance in this movie is one of the most sudden, brutal killings I've seen in a movie. Just the sheer speed and brutality with which it happens. Still kind of takes me by surprise. He just kind of walks out, clubs a kid, and then walks back. There is a chase scene in this movie that I swear has to last 10 or 15 minutes where this girl is being chased by a guy wearing a human mask over his face, wielding a chainsaw, and he's always just two steps behind her. It's not really even edited so that it cuts to her and him. You can see her trailing behind her. And then there's the dinner scene at the end that takes place. And it, I, I think that's the part where the movie really burrows under my skin. Just... This weird, upsetting family. 
where uh, there's a sequence with the grandfather and him trying to eat that is horrible (laughs) and disturbing. But then you realize the furniture is all made of bones and the lamp hanging from the ceiling is made of a woman's face. Yes. And it's this weird, uncanny bastardization of an American family. (laughs) And it, it just works. It terrifies me. I do not like to revisit this movie, even though... I think it is extremely effective at what it's trying to do. And I, that's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is a movie that just viscerally makes me uncomfortable and it's unpleasant and it's scary. <laughs> and so props to it. it. It does what it's supposed to do. What I want to see, uh, the, the, uh, the, my favorite part of, uh, of, uh, Grindhouse, mm-hmm. other than the Karen, other than Death Proof, uh-huh. which I like. Is uh, it contains the single for me, the only interesting work of Eli Roth's career, which is the trailer for Thanksgiving Day. Thanksgiving. I would pay money to see that entire movie because that looks like like the great natural follow. It should be seen on a double bill with (laughs) Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That always feels like exactly what he was going for and does so beautifully. I think the thing that also that makes Texas Chainsaw Massacre still work when a lot of the slashers don't. Slasher movies are actually. Like they, they're rhythmic. There's a kill, and then there's a lot of downspace. And basically, I, as I'm far from the first to point this out. They're porn movies. There's yes. there's a little bit of dialogue. Then there's the scene you want. Then there's more dialogue. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Once it gets going, is relentless and claustrophobic. Yes. And yeah. Oh, just talk about it. It, it. It's an ugly movie, <laughs> but you know it's supposed to be, and so I respect it for that. Yep. I don't like to rewatch it. What's your number three? Number three, and this is uh, the one I was most excited to talk about. This is the scariest. This is the scaredest I have ever been in a theater. Okay. As a as an a, an adult, as a, you know, as, a, as a, an over twenty year old, <laughs> it was not playing on childlike fears. It wasn't playing on fears of the unknown. Uh, and while it's not a straight up horror film, David Fincher's Seven remains the single most horrifying experience I have ever had in a theater. Okay. The most relentlessly afraid I have been of not understanding what is possibly going to happen next of what I would see of how I would transfigure and understand the world when I left the theater (laughs) the movie profoundly disturbed me when I saw it and still does to this day Uh, beautifully so I I think the film is an absolute marvel I I I cannot That that is a perfect screenplay and uh, I love that Fincher had the sheer force of will to make sure that that original screenplay got shot as was because there were many attempts to change it. Uh, and when he came back on board, said, I will do it if we get back to that original script. <laughs> um, it is the greatest neo-noir ever made. It, it ticks off every single uh, old 50s and 40s noir trope. It's wet. It is urban. It is in an unnamed city. It is a place you don't, that's never named. You don't mm-hmm. know where you are for sure. You're just around a lot of people. And yet everybody's alone. <laughs> and there is just a level of malevolence that hangs over this film like no other film I have ever sat through. Yeah. Uh, I would love to see this again in the theater. I haven't since, the, since I saw it when it was out. Uh, and I have never seen a film that so successfully confronts the audience 
with what it thinks it wants and what it will not give it. Mm -hmm. Or better yet, it does give it what it thinks it wants (laughs) to point out that this is not what you want. I have never seen a film challenge an audience, a genre film challenge an audience like Seven does. There are films that try. People love Michael Haneke's Funny Games. I think it's an absolute waste of time. Funny Games for me is always a film that was made for the people who need to see Funny Games are the people who will never see Funny Games. Sure. That's why I thought Funny Games was pointless. Seven was a giant. Seven made over a hundred million dollars. <laughs> I don't know how that exi- that happened. Because for once, everybody saw a great movie. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I know it was the point at which I took Brad Pitt seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the beginning of his creative relationship with Fincher. Uh, not to imply they had any other kind of relationship. Uh, he uh, it's when he stuck the brown contacts in his eyes. To ugly himself up a little bit. Not that brown eyes are ugly, but to get away from being, you know, Brad Pitt, the movie star. It is, um, I know it's easy to forget because she has become such a, a, an easy thing to parody and she works so rarely. Gwyneth Paltrow is spectacular in this movie. She has, she is genuinely the emotional core of the movie. If you don't buy her experience in the movie, you do not buy the movie. The end of the movie has no payoff. She uh, she has a scene in the middle of the movie, maybe a little little past the halfway point of the movie, uh, with Morgan Freeman. That is, uh, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> it is. It is. It is a stunningly emotional sequence that is played exactly as it should be that weighs all the more heavily because of what Fincher has put you through in the hour and plus few minutes before they have it. Uh, deciding to have a baby or not in a world that you have been put in that is as um, um, uh, just un- unalterably stressful <laughs> and constantly on the, on the precipice of going away in horrific fashion is such an amazing question to ask at that moment. Uh, I, I, Seven is an absolute masterpiece. And it's the scariest I have ever been in a movie theater. I, 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 I cannot. I, I, I have no words left. <laughs> I, 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 Seven is, is beyond good. Whatever you think you think this is, if you've never seen it, see it. If you haven't seen it in a long time, go back and pay attention. It's startling. Seven was on my list. But I figured, I'm like, I I'm going to leave it on. And I know there was a part of me going, I don't know, we're just talking Fincher. I don't know if I should have a Fincher movie. Seven is absolutely a perfect choice for a list like this. Uh, Seven was another movie that my dad showed my brother and I. Um, and he went to the store. Oh, and you would have been about 14? I would have been, been in high school. No, it was 90, 95, 95, right? I graduated in 97, so yeah, it was about 15, probably. 15 or 16. Okay, yeah. Um, he went to the video store because he was, I must have been, I don't know if it was a Brad Pitt thing or what, but he was going to get 12 monkeys. <laughs> 12 monkeys was out. 12, we didn't watch. 12, 7, same number. Yeah, it, Brad Pitt, it, same thing, grungy. <laughs> um, so he came home with 7 because he's like, oh, yeah, it's a cop movie. I heard it's really good. <laughs> so we're all sitting down expecting a cop movie. And I don't know, like knowing my dad, even this way, I, I was surprised he didn't turn it off. Because this is a, I mean, there are images seared on my brain from this movie. The moment with the sloth victim is, I, I was terrified before he started breathing, and and that that bothered me. 
I remember the ending to this movie. Yeah. I, I, it is the only time this has happened with a movie for me. I did not sleep that entire night. <laughs> because it, it's kind of, you know, it, it wasn't a monster, you know, a supernatural monster. It wasn't, you know, this remote killing. This was everyday evil. And, it, you know, I'm, I don't want to spoil the ending to Seven, which people should know by now, but... There's a... I don't think it wrecks it. I really don't. It only it only wrecks the the overall attack on the audience. Like it doesn't. It isn't any more or less horrifying. It's just. It's the idea that the bad guy wins. That not just that a bad guy wins, but such a so, so thoroughly bad guy wins and martyrs himself to prove the yes. point. And I did not sleep that whole night. It was another, it was probably 10 years before I could bring myself to even revisit it. At which point I realized how much I appreciate that final scene with Morgan Freeman, which gives you just the faintest glimmer of hope. And I I like Seven quite a bit. It is a movie I am in need of going back and revisiting again sometime. Uh, I do like it. Um, my, my, My number three pick... Is another one where the ending knocked the wind out of me in another way. And it's another another thing about it. I didn't think about this before. It's a, another kind of transgressive thing that I didn't think a movie was going to do to me. Um, and it's 2007's Frank Darabont film, The Mist. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, which I went into this movie expecting, A, it was going to be like all the other Frank Darabont, Stephen King movies I'd seen. Which is, it's going to be a story that's ultimately about hope. It is. Just not in the way I was used to. (laughs) Um, So The Mist, if you haven't seen it because it was not a hit, um, although I think it's kind of gained a reputation over time, and they remade it as a TV show for a bit even. Uh, It's about a bunch of people in the main, in a town in Maine who get stuck in a grocery store while this mist rolls in, and there's these beasts in the mist. And... I really went in expecting this is going to be a 1950s throwback with fun monsters and things like that. And then it's going to be somehow wrapped up in a story of hope. Because that's what Frank Darabont did with Shawshank Redemption and Green Mile. Yes. Which are, you know, kind of more uplifting Stephen King stories. Long. Sorry. (laughs) Which are long. Uh, I believe the final phrase. The Green Mile. The Green Mile is so long. And I I literally remember seeing it going, you got that right. But, you, Frank. Uh, but the mist is really <laughs> ironic. His name's Frank. He just realizes. <laughs> the 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 movie is uh the mist is not that it's a very nasty mean movie. Um, I revisited it a while back. I'll get that in a minute. Uh, hold on. So the mist is not that 1950s throwback. I thought there are monsters that come out. Have you seen it? I have not seen okay. it. I know this too, and I would see it. I just never did. There are monsters that come out of the mist. They attack people. It's bloody and gory in a way that I didn't expect. But I was like, okay, yeah, that's kind of scary. But whatever. Um, but like a lot of other horror movies, what Frank Darabont's interested in is this idea of when the chips are down, can you really count on humanity to band together and protect each other? And in this movie, the answer is no. This is a movie where people turn to sac- self-sacrifice and relig- And there's a line in the movie. Um, character in the movie set, talks about humanity at one point after um, after everything's kind of broken down. And they're like, 
As a species, we're fundamentally insane, but more than two of us in a room together, we pick sides and start dreaming up reasons to kill one another. Why do you think we invented politics and religion? <laughs> and it's this movie where the community is kind of... That's pure Tyler Durden. It, it really, yeah. It, it, the whole community in there is starting to fall apart. And Marsha Gay Harden plays this woman who is this religious zealot who just believes these monsters from the mist. There needs to be a sacrifice to God to protect us from the monsters. And the thing is, is there are indications that maybe she's right. There are arguments that, that happen about whether to, you know, sacrifice, you know, someone who might have done something wrong or hold on strong. Um, Andre Brower's in it. He's very good in it. Thomas Jane's in it. He's very good in it. He just wants his kid back. But, uh, that's a development joke. <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, sorry. No. Sorry. I, whenever I hear Thomas Jane, I only think about uh, the Bucky Nights. But this is, a, this is a movie that... It builds the way you think it's going to build. It does what a horror movie is supposed to do. And then the last... I don't know. Do you know the ending to this movie? Yes. Okay. I'm going to spoil it because it's 10 years. It's more than 10 years old. And it really... You have to understand why this movie impacted me this way. You have to know the end of the movie. So at the end of the movie, Tom Jane's character and his kid and a lady in the store and this older couple escape into the mist in their car. They're going to drive it. They're going to find help, and they're going to hold out hope as long as they can. And they just enter this world that has been destroyed. And there are these 100-foot-tall beasts roaming the land. It's very Lovecraftian. And there's this uh, this dirge on the soundtrack that just, it sounds like something out of, like, hell. And it, you just, it's this oppressive sense of the world has fallen apart. It's been overtaken. And they're going to press on. They're going to press on. They're going to have hope. And they get to a point where the car runs out of gas and they start to realize there's nowhere else for us to go. These monsters are going to destroy us. They have a gun, has four bullets in it. Thomas Jane kills his son, kills the old couple, kills the other girl, gets out of the car to wait for the monsters to take him. And at that second, the cavalry arrives <laughs> and help comes in. Yep. And it really, like, it. I, I remember I was at a press screening for that one. And you could have heard a pin drop in that theater. It was the air was sucked out of the room because that's not supposed to happen in a movie. Yes. Not in a big budget horror movie, studio horror movie. You're not supposed to kill everyone and then kick the audience while they're down. Yes. And I wrestled with this. Like, I drove home really bothered by this because... I kept coming back to the idea, no, Frank Darabont wouldn't do that to me. He made a movie about hope. And I finally last year got around to finally going back to revisit The Mist and The Shawshank Redemption. And I wrote an article about it. I'll post it in the show notes about how these movies are really two sides of the same coin. It, one is a movie about the importance of hope. They're both about the importance of holding on to hope. One is about the joy of holding on to it. The other is the horror of actually giving up hope. Yeah. And they're both about that. And it like it was really profound, but it it bothered me in a way to see it so realized what it looks like to lose up all hope and just give up and accept that things won't get better because you don't know when that that salvation's gonna come <laughs> in. And uh, I, I think that is a horror movie that really horrifies um, as we kind of sit in an age where I think every day the it's got to get better any seconds in our culture. 
And, and I, you know, I, I think this is a movie that really should be revisited in light of where we live right now. Um, yeah, it's it's the mist. It is scary, but I think it also has a lot to say. Um, yeah, that's the mist. I'm running out of voice. <laughs> <laughs> that happens. That, that absolutely happens. So, Perry, was there anything you left off the list that you've considered, or? Um, yeah, the, the only other. Th- the only other thing I thought about mentioning, and I, I, I don't know why I didn't, because I, I probably wouldn't another ten years. Because we're talking about films that scare me, and while this film didn't scare me, it is my favorite horror film of the last few years. I loved A Quiet Place. Oh, I do. A Quiet love Place a is, is an old-fashioned monster movie yes. that, that, you know, works at the level of a grim fairy tale. Yes. It is... It is deep <laughs> it is actually about something mm-hmm. and is such a wonderful piece of good old-fashioned filmmaking it's it is so reliant on the image it is it does not lean on dialogue in any way and even finds that inventive voice to be like i love the scene in, with the kids in the silo just because mm-hmm. oh wow you forgot how to do a quicksand scene I can't remember the last time I saw a quicksand scene that that was any good. That certainly wasn't in Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. You did it here. Congratulations on you, John Krasinski. That's a great movie. That's the only one I I thought about, but I didn't really, like I said, the way I had this broken down, I didn't really have a slot for it. I wanted to pick stuff that genuinely scared me. I think A Quiet Place actually was on my top ten list last year. It was for me, for sure. Um, And I think it's another one like Rosemary's Baby, where it is, it's a movie about parenting. It's about the fears of raising kids in a world where anything could kill them. Yeah. I I like that movie quite a bit. Um, I, you know, the only two I had that they scare me, but they just seem like too obvious would have been Jaws and Alien. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, I, you know, I don't know that I can say anything about Jaws or Alien that has not been said a billion times, even though I love those movies. That's our discussion on horror movies. We will be back in two weeks. Boom. That's pretty good. <laughs> In the meantime, where can people find you, Perry? Oh, you can find me at Perry Loves Film on Twitter, Perry Cybert on Facebook. You can hear me every Friday morning at about 9.40 a.m. or so on the Lucy Ann Lance Show on 12.90 a.m. in the Ann Arbor area. She's also online, so look it up. You can find me. I'm probably in the third row at your local multiplex. I'm everywhere, Chris, all the time. Where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Mere Christianity. You can find me at Michigan sportsandentertainment.com where I write about film and you can find me uh, my other podcast Wasting Time airs every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts we'll be back in two weeks miss you Emily <laughs>